Benito Sereno by Herman Melville. Chapter 3. Follow Your Leader. A Summary. As a reminder, these chapters are a creation of me, Kirk Barbera. They are not a creation of Herman Melville. They are my way of helping you to understand and digest this novella by Herman Melville. In chapter two, we concluded with the shaving scene. And we concluded specifically with Babo, the slave of Benito Sereno, running to Delano, and he has a cut on his face of, of Babo. And the cut was given to him by Sereno in retaliation for that accidental nick that he gave to Benito Sereno earlier. Chapter 3, Follow Your Leader, my title, begins with lunch. So after the shave, they all go for lunch. Most of the lunch is made up of, or all of the lunch is made up of the goods that Delano has brought over from his ship, which is now nearby, the Bachelor's Delight. During lunch, Delano utters several remarks on the African race including a comment about mixing bloodlines. Delano wishes to speak about compensation for his help with San Dominique, but feels slighted that he isn't given a private audience with Benito Sereno. Then the bell sounds for two o'clock, and a favorable wind finally comes in. Delano will help get the ship to safety now. Delano goes around the ship, ordering it to be raised and readied for sailing. Soon, Delano's ship, the Bachelor's Delight, comes into view. Captain Amasa Delano then prepares to leave the San Dominique, or Benito Serino's boat or ship. He shakes hand with Serino one last time. But Serino seems reluctant to let Delano leave. Just as Delano's boat pushes off, Benito Serino springs over the side of the, sh- uh, the ship San Dominique and lands in Delano's boat right at his feet. Three Spanish sailors are seen jumping into the ocean. Many slaves also jump in after them as well. Babo jumps in the boat alongside his master, Benito Sereno. Delano and Babo fight. Babo then tries to kill Benito Sereno. Suddenly, in the tumult, the canvas in front of the San Dominique ship is torn off to reveal a skeleton has been nailed to the front and next to it are the words, follow your leader. This, it turns out, is Benito Serino's friend, Aranda. Later, the American sailors board the ship, the San Dominique, and retake it from the slaves. Finally, both ships make their way to Lima, Peru, for a formal inquiry. Okay, so that is our formal summary of chapter three. 
And I want to say that this is the end of the general narrative of this story. Now, there is one more chapter, and I'm going to challenge you to please not give up and read it. And the reason that I'm saying that is a lot of people do give up, or the few people who read this story do give up or don't want to read the last part because the last part is a series of depositions. Now, these are crafted depositions, but they do read a little bit like depositions. It's not super long. It's, uh, I think, in mine... Uh, section, maybe 10 pages, maybe less, maybe a few pages less. The very last, actually, it's more like seven pages. The last two or three pages are actually a kind of conclusion to the narrative. It's kind of a button on the whole story. And it's that part that's super critical, but it doesn't make as much sense without the depositions. And the reason I say to read these depositions, even though it feels like the story is now over, we know, right? We know kind of what happened. But this is part of, it It takes away from what Herman Melville was trying to accomplish with this piece, if you don't read those depositions. Because as we've been saying so far, or as I've been saying so far, the big question, I think the big dilemma in this story is an epistemological quandary. A man who is incapable of comprehending a situation is put in an event where he must, he is called upon to actually understand or comprehend. And we find that Delano is just absolutely out of his depth in terms of understanding this entire time. And that's part of what I want to talk about in this concluding closer look at this final part of the narrative. Now, to start us off, I want to actually read a reread a section at the end of this narrative. This happens um, right before, well, it's the revelation. It's Delano's revelation. It, it happens after Delano and Babo have jumped onto his boat. He's He's now floating away, or the boat is being pushed away by the oarsmen of the American sailors going back to the bachelor's delight. All these black slaves have jumped over the ship going after them as well as Spanish sailors going after the ship. So the whole point is that Delano is still not fully sure what exactly is going on. He just knows that there's this big event. He's been worried about some kind of event the entire time. And his men, in fact, tell him to start paying attention to, you know, they basically say, look at what uh, Benito Serino is saying. Look what he's, listen to what he's actually saying. And glancing down at his feet, Captain Delano saw the freed hand of the servant aiming with a second dagger, a small one, before concealed in his wool. With this, he was snakishly writhing up from the boat's bottom at the heart of his master. So it takes him a few minutes, but it, it finally dawns on and the the word the term the metaphor dawn is an important one here actually I think because we get a lot of light and dark analogies in this story or metaphors and so it dawns on Delano finally what is happening so I'm going to read this section again when he when he finally figures it out that moment across the long benighted mind of Captain Delano a flash of revelation swept illuminating in unanticipated clearness his host's whole mysterious demeanor 
with every enigmatic event of the day, as well as the entire past voyage of the San Dominique. He smote Babo's hand down, but his own heart smote him harder. With infinite pity, he withdrew his hold from Don Benito. Not Captain Delano, but Don Benito, the black, in leaping into the boat, had intended to stab. Both the black's hands were held as, glancing up towards the San Dominique, Captain Delano, now with scales dropped from his eyes, saw the Negroes, not in misrule, not in tumult, not as if frantically concerned for Don Benito, but with mask torn away, flourishing hatchets and knives, in ferocious, piratical revolt. Whew, it took almost 100 pages, it took 80 pages, it took, you know, all day just looking around, Delano finally figured it out. And it took a knife aimed at Benito Serino's heart by Babo to learn everything that's going on here. Or at least I should say to learn the one perception of it. And I'm going to tease you a little bit with this, that this is one of the reasons why the deposition is going to be really important because the deposition is the first time we're going to get a perspective on this whole event that isn't filtered through the mind, through the eyes of Captain Delano. And this is such an important part of what Herman Melville is trying to get across. As we have this story of a man who's put in this situation, but he is incapable of figuring out what to do, but he's a captain out at sea. It's his job. He's in charge. You know, he's putting his own life and the lives of his men in danger by not being able to comprehend the danger that's actually going on with these other people. Now, on that note, on the note of the perspective of Captain Delano, which I have especially last commentary, but since the very beginning, I've been hammering home and I'm trying to get you to look again at these passages that really, really point out his ignorance. And it comes to full fruition. Now, it's been there the whole time, but in this chapter, we get the full fruition of one reason why it is almost impossible for Benito, for Delano, excuse me, for Delano to really comprehend what is going on. Now, here's one perspective on this. Um, Babo, this is right at the beginning of the chapter that I started. Babo, who is who, as if not unconscious of inferiority, eyed askance the graceful steward. But in part, Captain Delano imputed his jealous watchfulness to that peculiar feeling which the full-blooded African entertains for the adulterated one. As for the steward, his manner, if not bespeaking much dignity or self-respect, yet evidenced his extreme desire to please. Now I'm going to skip down, and the, the steward he's talking about is Francesco, who is setting the place, and um, setting the place for lunch. And Delano interprets the look that Babo gives him as something 
attributable to his full-blooded Africanness. Um, and that, you know, so if you feel that that's kind of racist, you're probably right. That's pretty racist. And that is throughout this whole story. And I've, I've kind of tried to emphasize it without saying it. And I want to hold off on full analysis until the end, but think about when you're reading the story, all the times that Delano has interpreted the black slaves as animals of some sort. He calls the negresses, you know, he calls them negresses. The, he call, he um, equates them to does, right? Like a female deer and the fawn is their baby. And he draws it as like this national geographic type thing, right? Like that's what he's looking at is like the, looking at a national geographic of animals. It's, it's a, a Disney animal documentary that he's looking at. And it's like, well, we should, you know, today that should strike us as very odd. There's another, or very racist in terms of oddness, but in 1799, not as much. And then this was, that's when this story takes place. The book is written, remember, in 1855, five years before the Civil War for this exact question. And down below, he also um, says this to to Don Benito. He says, Don Benito, whispered he, I am glad to see this usher of the golden rod of yours. The sight refutes an ugly remark once made to me by a Barbados planter that when a mulatto has a regular European face, look out for him. He is a devil. So notice how Delano associates things to, you know, he heard something. He's a well-traveled man. He heard something, but he's glad this was proven wrong. Right. But it, it, it percolated in his mind that it's possible. Right. And, and he, it, he's referring in this case to Francesco who kind of rubs him the wrong way in this sense. But I just want you to notice the, you know, the idea that this Barbados planter, right? Like somebody who plants cotton, let's say, although I don't know what they do in Barbados. So a farmer who's probably racist. And he says, whenever you see um, a mulatto, this is a mixed race. Mulatto means mixed race. So Francesco is mixed race. And it's, if they have, so they're not white, right? If they have that mixed race in them, but they have a regular European face, that's the nose, the ears, the eyes are different than the nose, ears, and eyes of, uh, you know, an African, let's say, look out for that person. He is a devil and going down a little bit more. Um, he, he says for it were strange indeed, and not very credible, creditable to us white skins. If a little of our blood mixed with the Africans should far from improving the latter's quality, have the sad effect of pouring vitriolic acid into black broth, improving the hue perhaps, but not the wholesomeness. And then Benito kind of just, you know, checks him off, says doubtless, doubtless, senor. But, and then he glances at Babo and says, not to speak of Negroes, your planter's remarks, I have heard applied to the Spanish and Indian intermixtures. So he kind of, he actually kind of defends Babo and, and Francesco in a sense. But the point that, is worthy really, I think of contemplating is not merely that this individual is racist. He's obviously racist in a common way that was racist, you know, that everybody kind of, or er, many Duxbury, Massachusetts people in 1799 would have held that view. 
similarly even with 1855. But the point is how his perspective, which is influenced by this view of blacks as this way, you know, whether he thinks they're evil or not doesn't matter. He thinks pure-blood blacks, for instance, are there's certain um something about them, he says, that uh is mixes entertainment with work. It's something, you know, he he finds it pleasant to watch sometimes, right? Like again, like he's watching squirrels eat their nuts or something. Right? That's how he talks about the African slaves on this slave ship. So he um he does many things like that. And the point is that he is incapable of comprehending that Babo and Atufal and the slaves have the capacity to overturn the Spanish owners or masters, quote unquote, that they wouldn't have it in them to actually consciously put over everyone, including himself, this masquerade. That's the core of this story. And there's more to it than that even, but we'll wait till after the deposition. But that is something I really want you to understand is that Delano does not, I mean, would you imagine that a bunch of bats, right? Like he thinks of them as bats, as, as deer, as uh, monkeys. I mean, that's the kind of racist view. He'd, he doesn't say monkeys, but he views them as animals. Now, you may think that, you know, lions or a bunch of apes could really harm a human if you're caught in the wrong perspective or caught in the wrong uh, situation with a lion next to you, right? Obviously, you know, physically that's not going to happen, but you would never think that a band of lions or a band of bats or a band of deer or a band of dogs. He he equates Babo to a Newfoundland dog. That a band of them, you know, any pack, it doesn't matter, that they had the ability consciously, um, intellectually, intelligently, to put over something of this magnitude. That all the things he was seeing was actually the fact that the span or the, the slaves were in control and putting it forth as though the Spanish were in control in order to deceive Captain Amasa Delano. And that is something he cannot comprehend. He doesn't have what it takes because he has a racist view built into him. So that is the core that I wanted to get across with this story. And we're going to talk a lot more after the deposition of the totality of the story And also, I want to get into more something that I haven't talked about, which is Benito Serino. So we've talked about Benito Serino from Delano's perspective, but once we have the total story, we're going to be able to go into more detail on Benito Serino uh, and what's really going on with him, what's going on with Babo and everybody else. So the important point of this was for you to understand that this perspective was in, was the basic epistemological quandary I was trying to get across. Now, the second thing that I want you to do now is now that you know the mystery, go back to all the events that occurred and think about what they kind of mean. And we're going to get even more of this. So I'm not going to dig into it too much, 
But, you know, this entire time, Benito Sereno has been under the thumb of Babo, right? And and the, all the other slaves on the ship. So think back to all the bizarre events, the shaving scene, Babo's behavior, Atufal in chains, the um, black slave, quote unquote, hitting the Spanish boy over the head, right? Um, on page 221 of my work, Delano wants to talk with Benito Serino in private regarding compensation for his help, but Babo stays because he is, quote unquote, invaluable to Serino. Moreover, Serino never seems to care about the business dealings. Now we know why he doesn't care about the business dealings, because he doesn't think it's going anywhere. He doesn't think that anything's going to happen after this except for his death. He's beginning to lose or he has lost hope. Delano, of course, is offended that his help seems to go unnoticed, but it's not the help that is desired. That's part of what's going on with Benito Serino's. He wants, he doesn't care about how how much he has to pay back for the sales and the food that um, Delano is giving him. He wants to be freed from this situation, right? He is not the master. And that's an important part. Part. Remember the tiller, the tiller who's guiding the ship. He's the the um, basically steering the ship. He's Spanish, and he has two black slave helpers. But now we know those helpers were not um, those those black slaves were not slaves. They were there commanding him. They were there to enforce um, retribution if they tried anything. Right, So if anybody spoke up, they would f- enforce that. Babo constantly referred to as, uh, throughout the whole story, referred to as supporting Benito Serino, as though uh, he's also described as a crutch on numerous occasion- occasions. What does that support look like now? That is the core, that is the whole point of this mystery. Why it's so good is it's about perception is it looked one way at the beginning, but now that you know what's going on, it looks a completely different perspective. And that is, I think, part of the brilliance of this story. So those are my first two points. I have one more point before we, I give you a little tip on reading the depositions and what we're going to be looking for there. Um, so the, the first one had to do with the epistemological first point had to do with the epistemological quandary that is experienced by uh, Captain Delano, that he is in this situation that he is incapable of understanding. And yet his and Benito Serino's life and all the other Spanish sailors and the Americans uh, sailors, because the slaves might go at night or the, the I should say they're no longer slaves. The um, Africans might go at night and kill the Americans and take over that ship as well. But uh, luckily that doesn't happen. And it's, you know, just kind of a matter of some luck, but it doesn't happen. But that's the first point is that epistemological quandary. Now, the second point was about the mystery of what was going, what was in fact going on. Now we kind of have an idea, at least not a full picture, but a better idea that the slaves had revolted and taken over the ship. So when you go back throughout the story, all those weird scenes look more clear. Now they make sense. Our perspective on them is more accurate. When we see a Spanish sailor putting his hand in tar to, you know, um, scrape something off the boat. And then we see two or three 
quote-unquote African slaves next to him, we now know that those African slaves are not helping him. They are there ensuring he doesn't do anything stupid, right? Don't do anything stupid, man. That's the, the kind of point there. Now, the third point that I wanted to make for this commentary, for this closer look, actually is an important image that I want you to comprehend more. This also comes toward the end of this chapter before the, um, it happens right before the revelation actually. And it happens before the battle and before the Americans go and retake the ship. And it's when captain Delano, or excuse me, when captain Benito Serino has jumped into the boat with captain Delano, captain Delano thinks that he is, there to murder him. He even says, this man plots to murder me. Then Babo comes in and he thinks Babo is there to murder Amasa Delano. So Amasa Delano thinks everything is about him, by the way. That's not a coincidence. That it's all filtered through his perspective. It's all, it's all about Captain Amasa Delano. And it takes the dagger that Babo is writhing over with the dagger to kill Delano. But that happens, or k- kill Benito Serino, but that happens right after this scene that I'm going to show this image. And I really wish this is one image I would love to see portrayed or even painted. That would be wonderful because I find it compelling just to contemplate the image, but also kind of complicated in, in like how a person exactly puts themselves in this physical situation. Okay. Here's the, the passage. At this juncture, the left hand of Captain Delano on one side again clutched the half-reclined Don Benito, heedless that he was in a speechless faint, while his right foot on the other side ground the prostrate Negro, and his right arm pressed for added speed on the after oar, his eye bent forward, encouraging his men to their utmost. Okay. (laughs) So that's quite an image, right? So you have this captain and I have put pictures on troubadourmag.com of the real Captain Amasa Delano. Remember, this is based on a, uh, a biography, an autobiography by Captain Amasa Delano that was written in the early 18th century, 1800s. And so there is a picture of this real person. So picture this, this guy, he's got short cropped hair. He's from, you know, this um, Duxbury, Massachusetts person. I almost a, a picture a, the satire of him would be Peter Griffin in Family Guy. <laughs> That's kind of what Peter Griffin is. And, and he even, they even look somewhat somewhere. And I think Peter Griffin lives in Massachusetts, or at least he lives um, on that, you know, in that area. But, you know, so you have this guy, he's kind of a bigger guy, I would imagine. And he's got his left hand holding back and he's kind of gripping and holding back Don Benito, who's already kind of fainting. And then he's got his boot, his right boot grinding, you know, holding down Babo. And he's got his right arm on this oar on the back, the after oar. I don't know how exactly it works. I'm not um, a ship, you know, I'm not a sailor or, you know, any kind of sea person. <laughs> um, so he's got, but he's got his hand on this back or I imagine it, and he's somehow moving it so that it's speeding them up 
And then with his eye, his eye is bent forward somehow, but I imagined it like see snapping at it to like tell it's kind of his way of telling the, um, sailors with his energy, you know, like go faster, go faster. We got to get out of here. And, um, you know, to get them away from all the pursuing people, he doesn't know who's after them still, but he's just holding these two people back. And he's, you know, so he's stomping on Babo's head or he's stomping on Babo to hold him down. He's holding back a fainting Benito Serino. He's speeding the ship toward the Bachelor's Delight and away from the San Dominique. And his eye is telling his men to go faster. Whew, what, a, what an image. Now, in 1855, on the eve of Civil War, but on the eve of this whole question that still exists and lingers in the world of slavery, that there are slaves out there. I think this is a great image of the predicament that America would often be in. Um, although the Civil War, of course, was at home, uh, you know, in America, and it's against the forces of the North and the South, which seceded from the Union. Slavery is a broader question than this. And this whole story is, of course, about a new world captain from the bachelor's delight, right? What a great term bachelor, like an unmarried person, right? Unfettered. He's not, he's not tied down to anything. And he comes upon a ship, the San Dominique, this ancient ship that looks like a Gothic cathedral from medieval times. It's painted in that way. And there's this weird mystery that's going on and he doesn't freaking understand anything about what's happening. It doesn't make sense to him. Everything seems weird, odd. And then, so he's put in this situation between them. When the decision time comes, he, you know, his reaction is to put his boot on the slave and to hold back Benito Serino and to tell them to get as far away as possible. Now, this is a logical conclusion to make, I think, in that moment, not knowing what to do. But I don't think Herman Melville is doing this accidentally. I think there is a purpose behind the way that he's describing this. And when you think about even future wars, wars that Herman Melville could have no comprehension of, World War I, for instance, there is a sense in World War I in particular, and in World War II, where there are these kind of ancient Take World War I in particular, these ancient rivalries that America has nothing to do with. And yet America gets involved and kind of tries to forcibly separate both of them. Now, the criticism, if we're going to take this from a, let's say, an, an analytic new historic criticism, but I don't, you know, forget all the the kind of um, literary crit stuff. The the way to look at this though is how does it look that Captain Amasa Delano puts his boot on the uh, head, let's say, of Babo. So let's let's ask the slavery question, and this is a challenging one if you take history seriously. So today in twenty twenty. We know 
that Babo has every right to kill his master, the man who, especially if he means his freedom. Now, whether that's exactly what's going on here, we're going to find out in the depositions. This is why the depositions are so important, because it's actually more complicated than that. But there is a question of, you know, what does a slave have as a right against his masters? And Frederick Douglass has pointed out that, you know, any slave who kills his master is reenacting the uh, revolution, the American revolution. And there's, that, I, I agree with that. My um, friend C. Bradley Thompson is a constitutional scholar, and he's a, an expert on John Adams and many of the founding uh, fathers. He wrote a book that I recommend called America's Revolutionary Mind, A Moral History of the American Revolution and the Declaration that Defined It. And in an interview, um, I think October 2020, with Don Watkins on the show, the podcast Liberty Unlocked, he put forth a really good moral point. So he loves the founders. He thinks that they're amazing, but you know they were great men. But you have to be honest about their involvement in this horrible institution, slavery. And so one way that C. Bradley Thompson, the prof- a professor at Clem- Clemson University, professor of history, the way he put it was, let's imagine Thomas Jefferson, the writer of the Declaration of Independence, who owned slaves. Let's imagine one of his slaves got away. Well, he would probably get on his horse and go chase down that slave because it's his property, right? Well, let's say that they get separate, you know, Thomas Jefferson gets separated from, you know, his posse of people going after them. And it's, they're in the jungle and it ends up being Thomas Jefferson facing his slave. Who would be in the right to kill whom? I think today we know that's pretty clear. That's not really a question even though it's Thomas Jefferson. And this is something that might make some conservatives squirm in their seats. But in fact, he, the slave, would have every right to kill Thomas Jefferson because the institution is evil. Well, again, look at this moment of what Amasa Delano is doing. He's keeping down this slave. He's keeping him away from his master and from, in a sense, you know, freedom. Uh, I'm going to say that there's more than just freedom going on. There's kind of, there's a, I'm going to put it as revenge, but we're going to save that for a little bit later. But I just want you to have that image in your head of this Amasa Delano who's putting himself in between these forces and what that means. And there's a very strong uh, point of this in art happening quite often, especially in the pre-years, the, f- the few years before uh, any kind of war. In fact, you see this in every war. There's always these stories that aren't dealing directly with the war that's about to happen, but that kind of, you could see it in retrospect. Looking back in 2020, I can see in 1855, this is clearly what um, Herman Melville, part of what Herman Melville is talking about. And let me give you an example that's more modern 
of this happening. And again, this happens all the time, hundreds of stories, thousands of stories, you know, that, that have this kind of appeal and they have this kind of purpose behind them, or at least as one of the major purposes of the, the art. In 1960, there was a movie released called the Magnificent Seven. Now this is a remake of a, an Asian film of a similar, almost exactly the same kind of plot. But the point was that this movie, which is lauded as such a powerful movie today, and it's an okay movie, but the reason we think of it as so incredible is because it happened in 1960 and we would really begin increasing our presence, American presence in Vietnam in 1961. And a big part of our going to uh, um, Vietnam in 1961 and continuing after that is hidden in uh, uh, hidden in the messaging of the Magnificent Seven. So the messaging that the American people got, including from previous presidents and from presidents around this era, uh, including John F. Kennedy, whose inauguration speech is titled the new, you know, or we call it the new frontier. And he talks about the Peace Corps and our duty to help people. You know, this is the beginning of America as a police, uh, a police for the entire world. So in Magnificent Seven in 1960, you know, really our involvement was kind of in Vietnam existed, but on a much smaller scale. Uh, And it really didn't start until 1961, at least according to uh, Congress. So in 1960, we have Magnificent Seven, which is about seven gunslingers, gun gunmen for hire. They're all kind of lost and they don't know what to do with themselves. They fought a previous battle, probably the Civil War. They've all been kind of jaded and they don't really have any purpose in life. And then you have this Mexican village, which is being overrun by some outside force that's just trying to take away everything, kill them, take away all their money, you know, um, make their life impossible. So you have a, um, you have these poor villagers, you have, they send over somebody to, to the nearby town to, uh, buy as many mercenaries, hire as many mercenaries as they can. They don't have a lot of money. And here's the crux. I'm not going to tell you the whole thing, but what it ends up being is that all seven of these guys go to this village to help them and they receive the equivalent of like, let's say a penny or a dollar. And the point of that, when you watch that scene, if you do go watch it, it's to de-emphasize any values that the Magnificent Seven, the seven gunslingers might have in the fight. They have no beef in the fight. There's no reason for them to go to the fight. They, they're not even given enough money to go to the fight. So, and the fact that it's only a penny emphasizes that they're really not doing it for the fight for the money. They're not doing it because their family's involved. They're not doing it because their property's involved. There's no law involved. It's a situation where somebody needs help and they go because the people need help. That's the only reason because someone needs help and because these gunslingers are capable of doing it. This is the origins or, you know, a big part of the origins in in our country of that idea 
that it's our duty as Americans because we're strong, because we're capable, because we have money and we have the, the resources to go and help everybody who needs it. Benito Serino and many of the stories prior to 1860, leading up to 1860, have that kind of tint to them, that kind of you know view. And this was a conscious effort on many of these authors who used their craft to tell a really engaging story. This is a great mystery story, even in 2020, but it's really helpful to remember why he's writing that it'll help you interpret the story. Now, the last thing is these depositions that are about to come up. First off, I want to say that I've done a reading and I will include the reading in, um, you know, so you can listen to it if you don't have time to read it. I would recommend trying to actually read this one. I'll include the text on tubadormag.com. But again, the whole text is available for free on Gutenberg or all over the place. Um, or you can, you know, I recommend the Penguin Classics, Herman Melville, Billy Budd, and other stories because there's other great stories here. My point is that my reading of it, I don't think was great. It was a challenge because it's reading basically a deposition. It, it does read kind of like a deposition. And in fact, there are sections cut out in the deposition and, you know, it even will have like a parentheses here in the original follows a list of some blah, blah. Right. And so there's, there's like ellipticals. There's, I tried to indicate these things by pauses. So you're going to hear a lot of long pauses. That's the, what's going on with the long pauses, but it's, it's helpful to listen or to read this for yourself. Big part of why. Uh, is that you will see the real background of all the events that are going on. So right now you have a general idea of what happened. There was a revolt by the slaves and they were telling the um, Spaniards what to do in a sense. But we don't know the details of that. And the deposition goes into the details. And that's really important to see who does what, why, when, where, what was going on with all of those actors, you know, that were putting on a play essentially for Amasa Delano to pull one over on him. Who was really in charge and what were their actual reasons? Um, besides merely, uh, because I think it pulls up a question besides merely they wanted to escape because there's probably easier ways for them to escape. It seems like there was more that they were going after we, we discover. So that is essentially my focus summary and my closer look at this chapter, which is chapter three, follow your leader. Hopefully now you understand why the, I titled it, follow your leader. Um, uh, Aranda, who is the friend of Benito Serino and the owner of the slaves, or in a sense, the leader of everybody in that area, not the captain, except that he was his, you know, uh, friend. Following your leader becomes a threat. So, because following your leader in this case means to be turned into a skeleton, right? So, follow your leader is kind of a threat. You know, if you follow your leader, you'll be turned into this. So, don't follow your leader um, or do it and die. So, We'll talk more about that later, but that's what I have to tell for you for now, for this focus summary and the closer look into this chapter. Thank you for listening. And I will have the readings up on Troubadour Mag very soon. And now you'll have the entire uh, 
everything, including of the, the text read by me, including the depositions. And uh, then I will later do a concluding remarks. Go to TrubadorMag.com if you have uh, if you want to put comments or you know even write to us to tell us your thoughts and we'll respond. Or go to Facebook Troubadour Mag and you can be part of the conversation on our page by going to Benito one of the Benito Serino posts and commenting there and we'll have a chat. So thank you very much and I will see you after the reading.